it's possible that we might see record viewing figures shows renewed in May. having to reduce their advertising outlay as well. pretty positive for the game. That sector. has increased 17% year on year. Hello and welcome to The Amp, the podcast from Ampere Analysis that brings you the latest news, research and business insights from industry experts in the global media landscape. Hello and welcome to episode five, season two of the AMP podcast. My name is Guy Bisson, Executive Director of Ampere Analysis, and I'm going to be talking today to Fred Black, who's going to be talking about Quibi's content fire sale, Minhal Moda, who will take us through a few inflection points that have been reached in terms of the growth of streaming viewing, and Hannah Walsh, who will tell us about ProSieb and Sat1's diversification strategy in the face of an increasingly challenging advertising market. We're going to start with Fred. Now, as analysts, we've seen many attempts over the years to crack premium short-form content. None have succeeded. Quibi was the business every analyst worth their salt secretly thought would fail, but few would state so openly primarily because that would have meant a bet against the previously charmed Jeffrey Katzenberg. But fail it did. We're not going to dwell on why Quibi collapsed, but rather on the content it commissioned and now needs to offload to recoup some of its considerable investment. Fred, in your report, you describe contract terms that put creators first. What were those terms and what are the implications for this content fire sale? So Quibi was really quite innovative in the way it approached content rights. Um, Part of that was down to a need to offer something a bit different in order to be able to attract key talent um, to to an unknown platform. So while there were surely differences between between different shows, the kind of standard blueprint that Quibi used um, was to take rights to the episodic version of the content for seven years. Um, after which all rights reverted to the producer. And you presume at that point, uh, Quibi would have kind of re-entered, renegotiated those rights. Um, however, and this is kind of a kicker for right now, after two years, Quibi uh, gave up its exclusivity um, and producers were free to distribute the content elsewhere, so long as it was repackaged into a feature-length version, so it was no longer episodic. That's bad news right now for Quibi in terms of selling its content, uh, there were reports um, in the week before the collapse uh, that Katzenberg had been trying to sell the Quibi library wholesale and had failed. That's likely partly down to many potential buyers not being interested in taking the full catalogue, but also um, for any shows that they are interested in, there's the other option of just waiting for the two years of exclusivity to expire um, and then negotiating a repackaged version with the creators of the content. Quibi's launch titles, therefore, will be available for distribution under this kind of deal in Q2 2022, um, with acquirers able to cut Quibi out of negotiations completely. On the flip side, so obviously that's that's bad news for Quibi and getting its investment back. But the fact that the rights are set to revert to the producers of the content is good news for those producers. And it means that Quibi's content may not end up in the kind of nightmare scenario of being trapped in a, in a Quibi-shaped box um, indefinitely. So you talk about those producers, but where, where had Quibi been turning for its content? Who are those people who are going to get these rights back within 
18 months, two years. So Quibi cast a pretty wide net for its originals. It commissioned in big numbers across both scripted and unscripted genres. Uh, Those commissions were focused largely in the US, as you would expect, but there were a handful coming into the UK and Canada too, um, and rumours of a further international expansion in the future, although that won't happen now. Quibi's largest partners overall, uh, the kind of top five, were Viacom, uh, NBCU, Warner, Lionsgate, and Sony, so major studios. Together, those five accounted for about 25% of Quibi's um, content that they ordered, both in terms of released and upcoming shows. Um, but beyond those top five, there is a there is a very long list and a wide range of producers um, who will have, have rights returning to them soon. So interestingly, all of those major studios that you mentioned have their own direct platforms recently launched. So they can sit on their hands for 18 months and get a whole load of content back, I guess. Yeah, that's right. You would expect that some of these platforms in particular have been struggling to produce content over the last year. Um, that's been well documented in the case of people like HBO Max and Peacock, whose who's originals slate in their first year has been drastically reduced um, from what we were expecting. Um, so there is a chance, therefore, that Quibi could sell their rights back to those platforms just to kind of gain those titles a little bit early and be able to fill fill a slight content hole that is happening right now. Sure, but that's the, the 25%. I guess the 75% is, as you say, a whole slate of independent producers. It's, it's fair to say that in its woefully short life, Quibi had risen to become quite a major commissioner uh, of original content. So what does its demise mean for the production industry in terms of money flows and in terms of volume of activity? So Quibi was pretty notable um, and pretty kind of seismic at the time in the way that it moved hard and fast into the originals game. Uh, So last year, 2019, Quibi was the eighth most prolific commissioner of new first-run content globally. And even this year, uh, it is still sat 11th in that league table as of right now. Overall, Quibi had commissioned over 170 seasons of content, uh, with a further 30 titles that were still in some stage of development, but still awaiting a series order. And Quibi's content was also premium, so upper-end shows on Quibi were budgeted at about $100,000 a minute. That's the same level of investment as you'd expect to see at a higher-end Netflix or Amazon show. And um, Quibi had committed to spend a full $1.1 billion on content within its first year. So in a year that has coincided with content producers being hit hard by a pandemic, uh, the death of Quibi represents a kind of a really major withdrawal of funding from a market that is struggling for that right now. Yeah, I'm sure a, a billion dollars would be uh, much welcomed right now as, as we're only just beginning to see the end of the pandemic, fingers crossed. But you note, I guess amusingly in the report, that Quibi's low subscriber uptake means that few people have actually watched the content. That means it's still fresh. That's a positive, but given that it's short form, how attractive is it and who might be interested in a whole slate of short form content? So even if we leave Quibi aside for the second, short form content has been a growing trend um, in the video on demand space for quite a long time now. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, we have the added factor of a pandemic. So this content's all becoming available at a time when uh, everyone is struggling for original content. 
So as I said, the new the new streamers picking up Quibi's scripted content in particular, that could offer a quick win. Uh, the content is relatively fresh. There's 92 complete seasons of it. And the major studios each own a handful of Quibi shows too. So they could be looking at a long-term home for a season two or a season three in the future, as well as acquiring the content that's available right now. There are other plus points too on that scripted content. So those shows include some top-line talent that could be the envy of any any show on streaming right now. And a number of them have a measure of marketable prestige uh, in the form of nominations and wins at the Emmys, um, albeit those wins being in short-form categories that are somewhat less competitive. On the unscripted side, uh, Quibi's reality content was their, their biggest hit uh, and made up the bulk of Quibi's renewals. So we saw uh, things like reboots of MTV shows like Punked and Singled Out. You could see those conceivably moving back to the parent network um, or to MTV's social channels even, where they've been rebooting a lot of IP recently. And then you've got celebrity-fronted shows. So Chrissy Teigen's uh, Chrissy's Court, uh, the celebrity money giveaway show, Thanks a Million. Those could be uh, good fits at other social platforms. So the likes of Facebook Watch, YouTube, and Snapchat, which are so far kind of specializing in that short form anyway. And then finally, you've got um, Quibi's slightly strange slate of daily essential shows. So these are largely news-based, but also include things like horoscopes, weather, etc. Some of the producers of this have likely got considerable sunk cost. So NBC, CBS, BBC News, um, all of these companies kind of set up daily shows specifically for Quibi. Um, and they saw Quibi as an opportunity to target a younger demographic with their news output. Um, so you could see those kind of shorter news segments moving to those platforms, social channels where they could publish them unilaterally. Okay, that that I guess will be ongoing new content produced with all of that setup that those companies have done. And another problem you talk about though is is this turnstile format that Quibi introduced as as an innovation, but now could cause them problems in trying to offload that content. Tell us about that and and why it might be an issue. Yeah, so just quickly, um, one of Quibi's kind of key features at launch was its turnstile technology. So this allowed viewers to flip between a landscape and a portrait view by rotating their device and you move between uh, the two views seamlessly. Technically, the way this functioned was that Quibi um, actually downloaded two video streams uh, simultaneously alongside a single audio track. Uh, the background stream, the one you weren't watching, that's downloaded at a lower resolution, uh, but the base is there so that when your phone turns, you avoid any any video buffering. Creatively, uh, so for the creators, that meant most Quibi shows were simply directed and edited so that you could crop easily in both portrait and landscape without missing anything. So essentially, that means that all of the action on a Quibi show is occurring in the very center of the shot. So for these shows, re-editing um, to a regular landscape or even a portrait view wouldn't be too onerous, uh, but it might lack a bit of visual, visual flair, visual stimulation, as the director had to put everything crucial to the plot right in the middle of the screen. Other shows, however, use the turnstile in a little more uh, interesting ways. So shows delivered uh, completely different content via those two streams. For instance, a lot of shows using a kind of third person and a first person view of the action, um, depending on which way you held your device. For these shows where you had key plot points happening in each stream, uh, those shows will take a lot more re-editing and redirection uh, so, that, so that a viewer in a landscape view isn't missing anything. However, this does all come back to the right situation a little bit. So content creators 
uh, under those deals would have expected to inherit their content back um, after two years or after seven years. And they may well have had one eye on uh, the potential resale value um, throughout the creative process. So there may, for a lot of these shows, already be a plan in place to adapt them out of the turnstile format. So a lot of hurdles, but also a lot of opportunity potentially to pick up some content on the cheap at a time when people are desperate for content due to the production shutdown caused by COVID. That's really interesting, Fred. Thanks for that. So Minal, you've been drilling into our Q3 consumer data across 24 countries, but I understand that in the US, a fairly significant inflection point was reached with regard to SVOD viewing. Um, How should we read that data point? Um, It has actually, guys. So for the first time since we've been conducting our polling, we've seen SVOD account for a greater share of daily viewing than linear TV in the US. Now, this is self-reported claimed viewing data, so it's probably a better reflection of appointment to view TV because people just don't tend to remember when they've left the TV on in the background or if they're watching the news, but it will reflect reasonably well when they remember tuning in at a specific time for something to watch. So it is very much um, an inflection point, as you say. One of the interesting things that the survey showed up being carried out just after lockdown was some of the uptick in viewing, again, particularly for streaming services, that was, I guess, COVID-induced or lockdown-induced. What's your view on those viewing shifts continuing as we begin to emerge from this crisis? In all honesty, I think it was a trend which was already underway. We've seen this in the decline of linear TV viewing, especially in the US over the past few years. However, it may have been accelerated by lockdown and the need for people to stay at home. Now, as things begin to open up and people are being able to leave their houses more, it's possible that we will see a slowdown in the rate of growth for SVOD viewing in the next wave of data. However, if there is another lockdown in the US, and we've seen the European lockdowns at the moment, particularly during these winter months, this could result in a further increase for SVOD viewing. At the moment, so much is dependent on the methods used to control the pandemic, as it will determine how much time is being spent in the house as well as out of it. Well, we all have high hopes for a vaccine, so it'd be interesting to see how that vaccine impacts the SVOD viewing trend. How is Europe tracking the US? We've talked about inflection point in North America, but what's going on in in Europe and, and where is that shift most advanced? So actually, it's a very different picture in Europe. Linear TV still dominates. It represents about 44% of daily viewing compared to SVOD, which represents 21%. Now, that's just looking at the big five uh, European countries. Now, a lot of this is being driven by France, Germany and Italy. All of these markets have really strong public service broadcasters and a big appetite for local content. So it's driving a lot of the linear viewing. Now, in terms of where the streaming viewing has, uh, where the shift is the most advanced, it's actually in the UK. So here, um, SVOD accounts for about 26% of daily viewing time. However, it's still behind linear, which accounts for 31%. So when we look at these markets as a whole, we can see that they're, they're behind the US, but SVOD is still increasing its share of daily viewing with each wave of our polling. So we will get there eventually, but it might just be in a few waves time. Interesting. 
I think um, one of the other trends that you picked up and, and, and you talk about is demographic. There's a number of interesting demographic shifts going on between the different age bands that we survey. Um, what's, what's happening there in terms of that evolution? So unsurprisingly, the younger demographics are still representing the largest share of streaming and viewing, and particularly 18 to 24-year-olds. But actually, we're seeing a growth across all age groups. Now, we've dug into this a bit deeper. And broadly speaking, across most of the market surveys, what we're seeing is that each age bracket is about 12 to 18 months behind the next age group. So in the UK, for example, 55 to 64 year olds SVOD viewing is about 12 months behind where the 45 to 54 year olds are, and so on and so forth. Now, in theory, what this could mean is that in seven to nine years time, we'd be looking at 55 to 64 year olds spending the same time viewing SVOD as 18 to 24 year olds currently are. Now, it's probably a little bit too early to say that it's definitely the case. The pandemic has been changing our viewing habits, so it's possible it might be a temporary trend. But there is definitely a rise in SVOD viewing amongst the older demographics, and how quickly that will continue to rise will become evident in the next year or so. Well, it never fails to amaze me how deep and rich that consumer survey is in terms of picking up trends. More in your report on SVOD viewing, of course. Um, Hannah, you're uh, looking as part of your day job at the commercial broadcast groups in Europe, particularly drilling down into their content spend, but also their sources of revenue. And of course, commercial broadcasts traditionally driven by advertising income. But the smartest commercial broadcast groups have long been diversifying away from a total reliance on TV ad revenue. Hannah, you've looked at ProSieben in Germany. What have they been up to? Yeah, so ProSieben currently retains the largest share of TV advertising revenue in Germany, as it has done now for over 10 years. At the end of 2019, that amounted to 41%. However, as we're seeing throughout Western Europe, shifts in viewing habits from linear TV to online platforms has weakened the TV advertising market. So as you say, in order to combat this, ProSieben has looked to diversify its revenue streams. It's done this by expanding its digital reach so most recently, it launched its streaming platform, Join, through a joint venture with Discovery. Uh, that's available as an AVOD service as well as an SVOD service and had a successful start gaining over 7 million monthly active users in its first six months. However, Proceedings still saw 4% decline year on year in revenue for its core broadcast business. So to make up for this loss, um, it's invested in its production arm, Red Arrow Studios, which saw revenue growth of 18% year on year in 2019. And also its diverse commerce segment, Newcom Group, which saw a 16% year-on-year increase in revenue in 2019. So overall, the group actually ended up seeing a 3% increase in revenue year-on-year. In your report, you compare and contrast ProSieben with the UK's ITV. Um, Love Island aside, how have the group's strategies differed? Yeah, the two can be compared in how they're investing in joint ventures with their SVOD services to increase digital reach, as well as investing in production arms to offset the decline in TV advertising revenue. ProSieben still has some way to go to match the share of revenue that ITV generates from its studio arm. So in 2019, ITV Studios generated £1.8 billion, which amounted to 47% of the group's total revenue while Red Arrow Studios only generated 16% of ProSieben's total revenue. What ProSieben has done differently is 
invested in diverse commerce segment, as I mentioned earlier. So the Newcom Group contains a range of businesses. It covers consumer advice, experiences, beauty and lifestyle, and also matchmaking, where it acquired eHarmony in 2018. So this segment has been described by ProSieben as its predominant growth driver and made up 23% of the group's total revenue in 2019. And it also saw a 16% increase in revenue year on year. That segment also provided resilience during the COVID pandemic. So as its broadcast segment and its production arm suffered due to wholesome productions and, and lack of new content, that commerce segment successfully grew its revenue by 5% year on year. So still on everyone's mind, of course, is COVID-19 and, and the impact that has had. How has Germany differed from the UK in respect to that impact? And, and how do the two compare to other major Western European markets? Well, Germany and the UK were similar in that they both fared better in the first quarter of 2020 compared to the other Western Europe markets due to the later arrival of the pandemic. And Germany had greater success in containing this. In the second quarter, they both saw a worse situation, as did the other Western Europe markets, but also fared slightly better um, compared to, to those markets. So in Germany, Prosieben saw a decline in ad revenue of, of 37% while uh, RTL Deutschland saw a decline of 35%. That compares to declines of 43% for ITV in the UK and declines of over 50% for broadcasters in Italy and France. So beyond theatrical, TV ad revenue has been one of the hardest hit sectors in the entertainment value chain. Um, hopefully, though, the flip side is that there'll be a relatively quick recovery. At least that's what the industry hopes for. What, what's the overall outlook for the group's ad revenue and, and how does their path to recovery look? So Proceben reported a recovery revenue in the third quarter um, compared to its, its previous quarter. So advertising revenue was, was down 6% year on year in Q3, but that's compared to the year on year decline of 37% in the second quarter, as I mentioned previously. So we don't expect there to be as great of a recovery quarter on quarter in Q4. Um, and we still expect this to be the TV advertising revenue to be down year on year in Germany in Q4, largely because of um, national lockdowns being reinstated in Germany and also across Western Europe in the lead up to the Christmas period, where we would usually see spikes in, in retail purchasing and higher TV advertising revenue being generated there. But it does look like there's, there will be recovery at the beginning of, of the new year. Okay, thanks, Hannah. Much more detail, of course, in your report, which is on our website. Thank you all for listening. That's the end of this episode of the AMP podcast. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Quibi and its content fire sale, that significant SVOD viewing inflection point that we've picked up in North America, and broadcaster diversification strategies, which, of course, are so important in protecting them from downturns in advertising revenue, one of which we find ourselves in the middle of right now. Please do join us again next month for the next episode of the AMP podcast. Thank you.